I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 114. And if you happen to be using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 510. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great God, we come to your Word in faith. We ask that you would help our areas of unbelief. We come wanting to increase our trust and rest in Christ alone for salvation. We have such joy and we ask that you would mature that joy as we consider the wonderful presence of the living God, the wonder that we are delivered from sin, your amazing power and ongoing presence with us. Every time we look to your word, may we continue to grow in maturity and zeal for the Lord our God, the Lord our Savior, our risen Lord and King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob, from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains that you skip like rams, O hills like lambs, tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. The word of our God, you may be seated. Throughout the ages, the church has faced persecution. From the opening chapters of the book of Acts and every generation since, followers of Christ have faced everything from mockery and belittling to imprisonment, torture, and even death. And what is it, you might ask, about the Christian faith that leads to such extreme reactions? Well, I think part of it is the exclusive message of the gospel. We believe the Scriptures to teach that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we might be saved. And it's the message of grace, that there is nothing that you can do to earn or merit your way into God's favor, but you are to lay aside your pride, humble yourself, receive and rest in Christ alone for salvation. This is a message that is for all of us, regardless of the human achievements that we may have accrued in this life. And because of this salvation by grace, the Christian's highest allegiance is to Christ Jesus. He is the very center. He is the defining reference point for all of life. And this conviction of the Christian is seen by the world as subversive, as dangerous, even traitorous to those who would promote some other agenda, some other higher loyalty. If you take the name of Christ upon yourself, you can expect persecution. Maybe not imprisonment or death, but certainly loss of friendship, being passed over for a job promotion, even losing your vocation, attack upon your reputation, and more. In this activist culture in which we live, it seems like the start of every month we are told that the varying causes 
or awarenesses that we are supposed to think of in that particular month. When I think of October, I think of the Protestant Reformation and Reformation Day on October 31st. Some of you might refer to that day as something else. I don't expect my Google Calendar anytime soon to tell me that it is Reformation Month. But I think it's a good time for us to reflect upon our Reformed heritage. That's a not-so-subtle reminder of our conference coming up in just a two weeks, in two weeks from now. But as the Reformation spread throughout Europe in the 16th and the 17th centuries, the Reformers oftentimes faced significant pushback and severe persecution to which their very lives were in jeopardy sometimes for nothing more than gathering together to worship the Lord. The Thirty Years' War in the early 17th century tore through Europe with great loss of life, with historians left to only speculate on how many died. Now, of course, the build-up to any war of that magnitude is extremely complex, but it was the gulf that separated the Protestant reformers from the hatred and disdain of the Roman Catholic Church that was certainly the catalyst that led to such devastation, persecution, and loss of life. In France, the reformers called the Huguenots faced some of the harshest form of persecution of any people group during this time. Under the very oppressive reign of Louis XIV that lasted some 70 years, followed by his great-grandson, Louis XV, they either killed or drove out the reformers by the thousands. And while we can't be certain how many died or how many fled for their life, it's been estimated by some that the the reformers' presence went from almost a million to just a few thousand after such persecution, nearly destroying the reformed presence in that nation of France, with the effects still felt today hundreds of years later. Now, I mention that because this particular psalm, Psalm 114, was a psalm that the Huguenots put to song, that they memorized and dwelt upon its content frequently. It was a psalm that ministered tenderly to them, bringing them comfort, joy, and hope, even in the harshest of circumstances. It's a psalm worth learning in our own lives. It's a psalm worth storing away because we know that persecution for the Christian will come. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will, not may, but will face persecution. And so though this is a brief and simple psalm, it's a psalm that's filled with rich theological truth. It's a psalm packed with deep comfort. It's a psalm that really spills over with wonderful promises and amazing declarations. It's a psalm, you might remember when we looked at Psalm 113 a number of weeks ago, that fits within a portion of the Psalter, which we find a small collection of psalms referred to as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. These are psalms that the children of Israel would have drawn upon during the annual Passover feast, reflecting upon the Lord's kindness to save them. Clearly, Psalm 114 speaks to the Exodus event when the Lord delivered his people from Egypt out of the house of bondage. It is a psalm that exalts and praises the living God as the deliverer of his people. And so for the one who is going through persecution, you can see where this truth about God's unchanging nature is particularly relevant and assuring. 
here, I think, is a, a very practical way for you to study the Psalms and to cultivate such truth as it is taught to you in your own life. That when you're reading through a Psalm, zero in on the attribute or the particular attributes of the Lord that the psalmist dwells upon and consider the implications of those things for your own life. Asking yourself heartfelt and probing questions like this. If this is true about God, then what does that mean for my present circumstances, trials, or discouragements? If this is true about God, then what does that mean as I think about my future hopes, desires, and expectations of life? If this is true about the Lord, then how should my life be more and more reoriented around this reality of his nature? And in this particular psalm, I think it is this, joy in the presence of the Lord because of his power to deliver. Now, notice how this psalm is divided nicely into four sections. Our English Bibles help us to see this division by putting additional space between every two verses. And so let's consider each of these four sections together this morning. First, as the psalm opens up in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is utterly amazed at the power and the presence of God. These are the things you see that feed his joy and that stir his confidence, as we'll see. So this is our first point this morning. Amazement before God's power and presence. I think one of the temptations that we face in the Christian life is the temptation to grow in complacency, coldness, or indifference toward the things of the Lord. And complacency oftentimes flows from familiarity. As you think back upon your Christian life, you might think of times in years past in which you were absolutely amazed at God's power and goodness, in which your life was filled with gratitude toward the salvation of God, and your heart was stirred with affection toward the Lord Jesus, your Savior. But human nature is such that over time, things that once excited us things that once moved us can easily become routine. Those things that once stirred our hearts in affection can lose their luster, as it were. Let's think of the example here of marriage. I've had the privilege over the years of meeting with dozens of young couples as they prepare to enter into the marriage relationship. And every engaged or newly married couple reasons pretty much similarly along these lines. And that is a great deal of optimism. We go through material, of course, we talk about conflicts and divisions and how to resolve such things, and they'll assent that those things are certainly true, but we're different. We're unique. We won't face the conflicts or hardships that we see in the, lot, in the world around us. Now, it may take only a few weeks, sometimes a few days, for that naivete to be exposed. But you see, unless husband and wife actively work together to cultivate their love, then their hearts will grow cold and detached, indifferent, complacent, as they take one another for granted. In the same way, this can be true of our relationship with a living God. We can easily take for granted the work of our Savior, allowing our hearts to cool where there was once great wonder for His salvation. And so notice how the psalmist challenges us in this area. I think it's a challenge throughout the entire psalm. 
to address that complacent heart. But what we see in the first two verses is, you see, the exodus from Egypt was both the most significant event in the life of the history of Israel, and it was the most familiar event to them. It was the event that they reflected upon more than any other. And yet the zeal of the psalmist, you see, has not faded. And so the lessons here of these opening verses is this. Do not let the familiarity of your salvation lead to coldness, to routine, or to indifference. And though the children of Israel reflected regularly upon their deliverance, the psalmist here, by example, is clearly moved by the power and presence of the Lord God. He is amazed and filled with wonder as he reflects upon God's greatness to deliver them. It is the power of the Lord that was put on display before a watching world as he fought on behalf of Israel to redeem them from their captivity. And it was that event that brought glory to the most holy name of the Lord. Egypt, as you know, was the greatest, most advanced nation of the ancient world. This was a seemingly insurmountable foe, and yet the Lord brought them crumpling to their knees. Even today, we're somewhat fascinated with the accomplishments of ancient Egypt, with its monuments still standing, with archaeologists, it seems, periodically uncovering new and hidden truths lying beneath the sands. And certainly, Egypt was known for its impressive accomplishments, but there was also oppressive practices. But even though Israel was enslaved there for some 400 years, the Lord their God was at work, faithfully preserving and being true to his covenant promises, preserving and helping them to keep their identity separate, lest they be immersed into this pagan nation. And notice how the psalmist describes Egypt here. They are a people of strange or unintelligible language. That means that Israel was never completely comfortable and certainly not assimilated into Egyptian life and culture. But even here in slavery, they remained the people of God. That's not to say that they were not tempted and certainly compromised. We know other places of Scripture that tell us that Israel dabbled in pagan worship. But nonetheless, the Lord was never absent from that time of hardship. And when it was time for him to act, he came, exposing the impotence of those false gods of Egypt, showing them to be nothing, powerless before the true and living God. But the Lord is not just powerful, but notice he preserves and delivers. As verse 2 points out, he is the one who chooses to dwell in their very midst. He becomes the sanctuary, and the people of Israel become his dominion. You see, the whole purpose of God redeeming Israel from captivity is to make them his dwelling place. Though God delivered them, though he has rightful dominion over them, his rule is a tender and loving rule. It is a kind and gracious authority, for he comes in intimate care to dwell with them. You can see already from these opening verses why the French Protestants really resonated with the message of this psalm. You see, it was the Huguenots' understanding of the Word of God that set them apart from their fellow countrymen as though they were strange, 
as though they were speaking a different language. It was because of their newfound faith in Christ Jesus, knowing that they were justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. It was those fundamental and foundational doctrinal truths that led them to feel like foreigners in their own land. I'm sure you've had that feeling yourself as you think about how different you are as a Christian from others around you. The way that you think about Jesus, the truths that you believe about God, the things that motivate and drive your decisions in life, even to gather here on Sunday mornings and evenings to hear from God's Word and to offer prayers to His name as we pray for the needs of our church family and to sing hymns of praise to the Lord. All of this seems so foreign to people who are living right next door to us. And the Bible uses this type of language to describe the Christian. We are new creatures in Christ. Hebrews 11 says that we are strangers and exiles upon this earth. 1 Peter 2 uses the similar language of sojourners and exiles. In a sense, we are traveling through this present age toward our heavenly home that awaits us in Christ Jesus. And so we should not feel too comfortable or too at home, as it were, in this present age. There's a sense in which we should feel like outsiders. And this psalm challenges us to consider the dominion of the Lord God over our lives. Someone has remarked, If they, if Israel, and if we are his sanctuary and dominion, then both mind and mouth must be kept from the world's language of folly and of greed and of absurdity and self-importance and deceit. And as the psalmist goes on in verses 3 and 4, there is this wonderful poetic description of God's power seen in the Exodus. So this is our second point this morning delighting in the strength of the Lord, delighting in the strength of God. And notice how the psalmist here in verses 3 and 4, look there again, the sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back, the mountains skipped like rams and the hills like lambs. Notice how the psalmist here personifies creation. He reflects upon these obstacles that were in the path of Israel, things that seemed to be impossible to overcome. But before the power of God, these things are driven back. They are subdued for everything is under the domain of the Lord. In verse 3, the sea looks and flees. And of course, the psalmist has in mind here the Red Sea. As the Lord parts those seas and Israel walks across on dry ground. While the tyranny of Pharaoh and his oppressive army is destroyed behind them. And then 40 years later, the next generation comes to the Jordan River, and the Lord turns back the flow of water that, again, Israel walk across on dry ground. In both of these occasions, the way forward seems impossible, but nothing can stop our God from accomplishing His purposes. He saves His people from slavery through the Red Sea. He provides a way of rest for them, bringing them into the land of Canaan, a land of peace and rest filled with milk and honey. But it's not just here. The strength of the Lord is also evident in the mountains as they skip like rams there in verse 4. 
I think this is interesting imagery to think about here for a moment. When you think about the mountains, the hills, in the context here of talking about redemption from Egypt and the Exodus journey, the mountain that would come to mind, of course, is Mount Sinai, and perhaps that is what the psalmist has in view, which, of course, is the mountain that trembled at the presence of God. When he descended upon Mount Sinai to bring his law to the people, there was smoke and there was fire, there was an earthquake and trembling. It was a fearful sight that caused the people to tremble and pull away from the base of the mountain. But here, the psalmist uses images that convey joy and wonder. The mountains like rams, the hills like lambs, that does not conjure up those fearful images like we read in the narratives of Exodus 19 and 20, for example. And it could be also that the psalmist has in mind the foothills of the land of Canaan, shaking and trembling before the Lord as they know that God comes as a conquering king ushering his people into this land. But either way, I think it's another way to capture this theme of living joyfully in the presence of the Lord. He is powerful and he is holy. He is a God to be feared and a God to be worshipped. At the same time, he delights to guide his people through the various hardships of this life. And our comfort is that nothing will be able to stand in the way of the Lord from him accomplishing his purposes of bringing ultimate blessings of salvation into the lives of his children. God is good, for he has rescued his people from all of their foes and has entered into a covenant of peace with them. Charles Spurgeon writes, Our God is so powerful that his presence before something inanimate cannot help but move before him as though they are living creatures. And as we move on in verses 5 and 6, we begin to see the ways in which these things affect the psalmist as he dwells upon the power and the presence of God, as he delights in God's strength to deliver and to make his people his dwelling place. It stirs him to respond in confidence and in boldness. This is our third point this morning from verses 5 and 6. Confident trust in the Lord. Let's notice there again. What ails you, O sea, that you turn, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills, like lambs? Notice how verses 5 and 6 repeat much of the same language that we just saw in verses 3 and 4. But now it's in the form of a rhetorical question, asking why the mountains, why the seas would have reacted the way that they do. Ligon Duncan observes that the hyperbole of this psalm is filled with such exuberance, such exaggerated poetic picture that he likens it to the modern equivalent of how an opponent might trash talk another before a big game. In other words, there is so much confidence in the part of the psalmist, so much trust in the power of God that it's almost a form of mockery toward the sea and toward the mountains. Those things which seem so impressive and immovable are nothing before the Lord. Mountains and hills, things that seem fixed and static, they come to life and they bow before the living God. Seas and rivers flee and push back before him. 
The confident response of the psalmist here reminds me somewhat of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 when he has the showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You'll remember Elijah is severely outnumbered. He is the only prophet of the Lord who is there. And the numerous prophets of Baal, they prepare their sacrifices. And Baal has all of the advantages, numerically, with the priests who are there, the location and the high place near the sea. Baal is the storm god. This is his specialty to bring lightning from heaven. The priests dance around their sacrifices, calling upon the name of their god to respond. They call out over and again chants and and prayers to him. They cut themselves to show their god that they are serious, to cajole him to respond while Elijah grows in increased boldness. His confidence is such in the Lord that he really engages in that trash talk against the opponents of the living God. The point here, you see, is that we should have such confidence in the power and in the presence of the Lord that we know nothing will take us from His sovereign hand. Nothing will stop our God from accomplishing His purposes. Things may not always be what they appear, but a day of reckoning is coming, and our God will show himself to be the reigning king. The same one who drove back the waters, the same one who destroyed the most powerful nation in the world as though it were nothing, the same one who subdues all of the things that might cause our hearts to worry or fear, this is the same God who is with us. Well, how can we have that confidence? How can we know that he is truly with us? Well, whenever we read of the saving power of God in the Old Testament, our minds should be drawn to reflect upon the work of the Lord Jesus and how he really is the fulfillment of all such promises throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And it is the saving work of Jesus that helps us to understand the true meaning and comfort of Psalm 114. We read earlier this morning from Matthew 27, where at the crucifixion of Jesus, the sky was darkened, the earth shook, the tombs split open, and the dead rose. The temple veil was torn in top from, from top to bottom. And on the third day, that immovable stone over the grave was shoved aside as death was defeated. Our risen Savior then ascended into the heavenly throne room, his rightful place above, where he continues to intercede on behalf of his children, sending the spirit of comfort and renewal into the hearts of those who are his. And he goes to prepare a place for us and will come again to take us to be with himself. This, you see, is how the comfort of Psalm 114 is ours. We might be tempted to look at the circumstances of this world and wonder if God really reigns, if he really has majestic and powerful purposes. But our comfort is that we are delivered. He is with us. His eternal decrees will stand. And the only proper response is to tremble in joy before him which is what we see in the final verses of this psalm, verses 7 and 8. Look there again. 
Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. And this brings us to our final point this morning, which is wonder before the God of life. Wonder before the God of salvation. And so the psalmist here in verse 8 reflects upon another event from the Exodus journey in which the Lord brings life-sustaining waters from the rock. You remember that when Israel was in the desert, they had this legitimate and very significant need for without water they would die. And so the Lord tells Moses to strike the rock with his staff and water flows and actually gathers together in a pool of water enough for the entire nation along with the livestock to drink and live. And this event, too, points to something so much greater than having thirst quenched for a season of life, for it points to the life-giving waters of Jesus. In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It is the life-giving work of Jesus that renews dead hearts, that awakens our consciences, that we might rest in Christ alone for salvation. I find it interesting that the only direct imperative that we find in this psalm is there in verse 7. The only command is this, tremble. Tremble in the presence of this mighty God who has done such wonders. Tremble before the one who can bring life out of death itself. Who would think that water would ever come from a rock, the most driest and seemingly foolish part of a desert that water would spill? Who would think that life would come from the Holy Spirit who would intrude into dead hearts through the work of a crucified and risen Savior. But this response of trembling is the only proper response before a powerful and majestic and tender God. And you see, this is what feeds the resolve within the lives of God's people. This is what makes us immovable and filled with great joy. When your hope when your peace, when your very identity is tethered to the living God and not to the things of this world, that is what makes you a danger to those who would oppose the things of the Lord. If God is for me, who can be against me? If nothing in this world can rob me of joy, if nothing can change my status as a child of God, if nothing can uproot my hope, then it's understandable why the world would hate me, whether it's jealousy, disdain, or rage, because we will not fall in line or capitulate to the rule of anyone or anything else because of where our allegiance lies. The story goes that there was a follower of Jesus Christ who was openly proclaiming the gospel in a hostile land, He was brought before the monarch and he was told to stop or he would be thrown into prison. But he was undeterred and he replied, Well, even there I will continue to speak of the excellencies of my Savior and I will praise his name. No prison can rob me of joy, 
for my hope lies not in this world. The monarch responded, then I will take all that you own. You will have no possessions, no livelihood. I will ruin you financially. To which he replied, no matter, O king. My treasure is an eternal inheritance that is undefiled and unspoiled, kept in my heavenly home, awaiting me in my blessed Savior. The monarch, again with increased frustration, said, Then I will destroy your name. I will ruin your reputation. You will be an outcast among the citizens of this realm. No one will befriend you. No one will help you. All will disdain you. Again, he responded, no matter, O king, I have a friendship with a living God through my beloved Savior. No words can hurt me. No words can change my status as a beloved child of my Father in heaven. Finally, the king, filled with rage, said, cease speaking of Christ or I will have you executed. Your life will be forfeit. You will be charged as an enemy of the state. To which he said, O king, that would be the most glorious of all. To depart this life, to be welcomed into my heavenly home, to see my Lord face to face for all of eternity, don't you see there is nothing that you could do to make me stop? Nothing that you could do to change my allegiance. Nothing that you could do to rob me of joy or take the peace that is mine and my beloved Savior. Nothing that you could do to tarnish my hope. What effect does dwelling upon the power and the presence and the deliverance of your Savior have upon you? What impact does it have upon your life? What impact will it have upon your life even this coming week? Do you derive lasting joy from the power and presence and deliverance of God? Or have you drifted into complacency because of the familiarity, embracing the priorities of this world around, looking to the fleeting pleasures of this life to feed your joy. Would that our trust, would that our confidence be like the psalmist, resting in the sovereign rule of our Lord, peace and comfort that our God is always with us, because of our union with Jesus, hope that our King rules over all, and joy that one day our Savior will return and take us to be with Him forever.